case S02, E04, Slow Burn Shakespeare, Part 2 of 6, The Shakeslayers. In the previous episode in this miniseries, we looked at the general biography of Shakespeare, birth, kids, fame, death, even more fame. Then we looked at the advent of Romanticism, the wobble of the British Empire, badolatry, and how they all coincidentally, or not, arrived at around the same time as the first documented existence of the Shakespearean authorship question. This is the question, hopefully you realise this by now, about whether or not Shakespeare actually wrote all the works attributed to him. That led us neatly onto the combatants. On the one side in Scarlet, the colossal, well-resourced, heavily fortified Stratfordians. These are people who largely either don't care who wrote the works in question, or who care, sometimes in very loud and indignant tones, that even daring to question Shakespeare's authorship is the deepest desecration of a holy national institution. And on the other side, in a splintered, colourful spectrum, the anti-Stratfordians, or as I call them, the antis, scholars, enthusiasts, celebrities, lawyers, those who feel that there is enough room for reasonable doubt and have, accordingly, developed a wide array of theories and alternative Shakespeare candidates. As this suggests, the antis are better understood as a large collection of tiny factions, some of whom are just as prone to warring with each other as with the Stratfordians. At the same time, however, their united agreement on one point, that there is room for doubt, and their tireless persistence in suggesting alternative explanations and digging for evidence has ultimately meant that their voice has been heard, even in the face of the most strenuous Stratfordian objections. Evidence That's a critical concept that I haven't said all that much about yet, which seems kind of important in an episode like this. It's not likely that the Shakespeare authorship question would have lived on for this long, and burned away this brightly, if the evidence on either side was completely non-existent or absolutely overwhelming. We'll get to the Stratfordian evidence towards the end of this miniseries. For now, let's focus on the antis. When they make these claims about whichever candidate or theory they prefer, what are they basing those claims on? What is their evidence? At its simplest, the arguments for doubting Shakespeare's authorship generally boil down to about five themes, depending on quite how you slice them up, and in a moment we'll take each one in turn. Welcome to Enclaire, an archive of forensic linguistics, literary detection, and language mysteries. You can find case notes about this episode, including credits, acknowledgements, and links to further reading at the blog. The web address is given at the end of this podcast. Right, so those five evidentiary themes usually drawn on when doubting that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. This first one usually focuses on education and literacy. So, 
No one really knows if Shakespeare went to that grammar school. So from the first episode, we mentioned that there was a grammar school in Stratford. His father became the mayor of Stratford. He would have been able to attend that grammar school for free. But nobody knows if he actually went to it, or indeed to any other more advanced educational establishment. There are just no records either way. He may never have done a day of school in his life. Now, if that were true, it would be extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, to reconcile with the extensive vocabulary and cultural references exemplified in the canon. The canon, by the way, is that first folio that I mentioned, plus maybe a couple of other plays, but we'll get back to that question later on as well. Moreover, some point to Shakespeare's six surviving signatures and how most of them spell his name in different ways. This, they say, is evidence that he was illiterate. Presumably the argument here is that it would be rather hard to write a play if you can't even spell your own name. In fact, if we take surviving signatures as evidence of literacy, then his whole family was illiterate. But back to these six Shakespeare signatures, a few even argue that between them, the handwriting itself differs, and some people build in different directions on this supposed evidence. Now, it might suggest on the one hand that different people were forging the signature, using the identity fraudulently, something we do come back to, or, more prosaically, two or more different people who happen to have very similar names have all been mistakenly identified as the same person. Or the handwriting experts are wrong and it just was the same person. Maybe one day his hand was really cold and another day he was writing on a really rough desk or with a bad pen or something. Who knows? But within this, some people say, what about those seven lost years? If he did become a fully-fledged poet and playwright, one presumes it at least started, if it hadn't already fully developed, then. But how? When? Where? He doesn't seem to have had any literary talent in his bloodlines from whom he might have learned, or at least inherited a talent for the craft, and there is no record of any plausible mentor or guide. Theme number two. Culture and class. Remember, Shakespeare was born, grew up, lived in Stratford-upon-Avon. Now, at the time, this was essentially a market town and its main business was sheep. But his works indicate advanced education, an appreciation for culture and the arts, and a degree of intimacy with very elevated lifestyles. So some of the plays depict the aristocracy, including their hunting and hawking, their tennis and lawn games, their court politics, even their petty squabbles. They also depict foreign places and foreign customs, and some argue that they generally depict the class of people that Shakespeare's own family belonged to as derisible, ridiculous, and even dangerous. Moreover, some argue that there is no evidence of a Warwickshire accent in his plays. Other people argue that there is, but there you go. The angle here, then, is that the plays should be thought of as a sort of semi-autobiographical record. According to this argument, we should view them as representative of the writer's own lived experiences from boyhood to man, and, according to this argument, those representations cannot match up with the life that William Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon would have lived. 
but there's still more. Theme number three, the spelling of his name. Yes, we are going to go back to that. Remember those varied handwritten signatures? Well, it happens that not only do their spellings mostly differ to each other, they also differ to the spelling of the name on most of the plays and poems attributed to him. So this, the aunties argue, is evidence. Why? Well, let's take my own surname, so Hardacre. Lots of people spell my surname H-A-R-D-A-C-R-E, like an acre of land. An acre of crappy land, I guess. It's actually the more common variant. So lots of surnames have multiple common variants. Brown can have an E at the end. Johnson sometimes appears without the H. Phillips can have one L or two. In the same way, Shakespeare sometimes had a hyphen. Uh, Sometimes the middle E or the last E was dropped. Sometimes both were dropped. Sometimes the A from the spear half went missing. Essentially, there are over 70 attested variations of the name. Some say over 80. I suppose it's just really how you count it. And just as, say, Dr. Davis with an IS is not the same person as Dr. Davies with an IES, so, the aunties argued, this was a different person. William is an exceptionally common first name now and then. His surname also was not unique to him. Thus, it would actually be fairly probable that there would have been another William Shakespeare somewhere walking around. It just happened that one was penning masterpieces and one grew up in Stratford-upon-Avon. So, another argument is, well, yeah, okay, maybe it was the same man, but he was a cutout. A front. A pen name for hire. I love that idea. I wonder how much you could make doing that. Anyway, accordingly, this fourth theme that we're now going to move on to focuses on the lack of documentary evidence linking Shakespeare to literature, the theatre, and so on. The aunties argue that the man from Stratford, William, the Glover's son, was in fact more notable for his moneylending, his real estate investment, his trading, his shareholding. Oh, and maybe he did a bit of acting on the side, but even that is questioned by some. So there's plenty of documentary evidence supporting the businessman aspects of his identity, whilst nothing, according to the aunties, explicitly identifies him as a writer during his lifetime. Yes, his name was on the title page of lots of publications, but groups of writers and individuals have been using pseudonyms and pen names since forever. I mean, for instance, Mark Twain's real name was Samuel Clemens. George Orwell's real name was Eric Arthur Blair. The Bronte sisters published as Curra, Ellis and Acton Bell. Jane Austen's novels were simply penned by a lady. For recent and still-living examples, look no further than Stephen King, John le Carre, E.L. James, Isaac Asimov, Michael Crichton, etc., etc., etc. People have good reasons for pen names. A new author might predict wild success and decide that, yeah, that's nice, but I'd also like to be able to retreat into a normal life now and again. The fame follows the pen name, the ordinary person can go to the supermarket without the risk of weird strangers taking creep shots. Sometimes the author has already had success and they want to see if a new novel is being accepted on its actual merits and not just because of their past record. Sometimes authors want to move to distinctly new genres but keep a clear air gap in case it's kind of embarrassing or controversial or, you know, possibly doomed to failure. And sometimes there might be something about that writer's identity 
that makes others think it is inconsistent with publishing. Historically, for instance, the idea of women writing, well, anything for public consumption was largely scorned. Similarly, an aristocrat writing plays for the amusement of the commoners would have been seen as shamefully beneath their dignity, but like a world-class pianist playing Rachmaninoff for a herd of goats. And to do so for profit, for money, would have been a very humiliating degradation. Other would-be authors might have warrants out for their arrest, they might have faked their own deaths or whatever, not really want to advertise that they're still alive, close by, and in excellent shape for an immediate public hanging. I'll get back to these weirdly specific examples later. Anyway, a subversion of this businessman argument runs that yes, William the Glover's son was indeed there. He was even doing some acting, lots of leasing, all that kind of stuff but that a secret individual or group of writers were borrowing his name, presumably with his consent, to publish these plays and poems under. This way, these people could still accrue money and fame, but at the same time they could be shielded by this pen name from any possible unpleasant repercussions, like mockery, or execution, or both. Another subversion of this theory is that, according to the Antis, there's no evidence that anybody saw him in a play or commented on his performance in his lifetime, and since the reports are all posthumous, they're obviously all invented. Therefore, he may have existed, but had nothing to do with the acting or writing sides of the business, or he was a purely coincidental figure who happened to float through the scene, confusing matters with his similar name and temporal proximity to the events, or he simply didn't exist at all. He was a figment of someone's imagination. So the fifth theme is all about Shakespeare's death. Antes point to several issues, or what they call issues, with Shakespeare's will. So, for one, they note that it is singularly unpoetic in its language, I've yet to come across a world that's been, you know, anything other than actually quite boring in its technical legalese and jargon, but they do point out that, you know, this is Shakespeare. Surely he could write an engaging will, I don't know. Moreover, it doesn't even bother to directly mention anything to do with the theatre. Nothing about his existing plays or poems, and there were a lot of them by this stage, nor even any mention of the unfinished works, and there were a few of them too. The one exception to this has been added in later, between the lines, in the form of mourning rings for three of the actors, and some of the antis point to this insertion as a forgery designed purely to make the will connect in any way whatsoever to the theatre. Instead, consistent with a man doing a lot of buying, selling, leasing and lending, Shakespeare's will is primarily concerned with settling his real estate affairs. And if we had hoped that some secret family heirlooms or archives might have survived through the intervening centuries, Shakespeare doesn't even have any direct living descendants that we know of who might at least have inherited something in the way of personal letters or books or papers that might fill in the gaps one way or another. So that's the more concrete end of the spectrum. Those are the five themes that are generally drawn on by lots of the antis but some also claim to have found other hints and insinuations. So I'm about to read a poem from the start of that all-important first folio, 
That was, as you may remember, a collection of Shakespeare's works that was printed in tribute to him by his contemporaries shortly after his death. Now, this poem is set opposite a picture of Shakespeare, as hinted at in the first two lines of this poem. Bear with, as I butcher, some classical verse. This figure that thou here seest put, it was for gentle Shakespeare cut, wherein the graver had a strife with nature to outdo the life. Oh, could he but have drawn his wit as well in brass as he hath hit his face, the print would then surpass all that was ever writ in brass. But since he cannot, read a look, not on his picture, but his book. It's really hard to read that and think it's not somehow comedic. Anyway, as I said, this is from the start of that first folio, published shortly after Shakespeare's death, and however unremarkable it might seem from a sleuthing perspective, several aunties have picked it up in different ways as evidence of their particular pet theory. Some have commented on the use of the word figure in the first line, so This figure that thou here seest put, it was for gentle Shakespeare cut. You might think that this figure is a reference to the image of Shakespeare on the opposite page, as I said, but some aunties have claimed that in the Elizabethan period, figure meant something more like fiction. So this fiction that thou here seest put. This, they argued, was a subtle allusion to the image as a fictitious author. And then there are the last two lines. But since he cannot read a look, not on his picture, but his book. Now, from that you could infer that we should just enjoy the plays instead of worrying about who wrote them, but Antes have interpreted this as a reference to the picture being a cover-up. I'll keep coming back to this first folio and these dark hints, but for now, let's get back to the point. Shakespeare. According to the more concrete end of the account, those five themes are run over. He's illiterate, uneducated, a humble market town boy, he's got no clear connections, living or dead to the arts or aristocracy. And if we are to understand the subtext of his will, he was far more bothered about property than poetry. When we take all this together then, is this sufficient to ask the question, did Shakespeare really write all the works attributed to him? Well, plenty of people from ordinary individuals to famous academics have argued that yes, this is enough evidence. And I would add one more thread to the tapestry before we move on. There are, to me, two very obvious reasons why we should be able to ask this question if we want to. And the first is, people should just be allowed to ask questions. You want to question gravity? Knock yourself out. I mean, empirically, if that's going to help with data collection. Want to doubt the existence of humans, podcasts, words? Be my guest. And actually, as most linguists know to their agony, it's really difficult to answer whether the concept of the word even exists anyway. But that's a philosophical nightmare we're going to sidestep. More importantly, history has shown us innumerable times that nothing stops the advancement of knowledge more completely than the belief that we already know the answer. And plenty of times, answers we've taken for granted have turned out to be wrong. Subjects we think we know of as facts are actually false, but because we think we know them, we never check, and so the error remains uncorrected, sometimes for decades. 
Quick example of things that people believe but that are in fact untrue. Einstein did not fail maths. He failed an entry exam and then he excelled at maths. We have more than just five senses. Our tongue does not have little separate bits on it that each deal with different tastes. The whole of the tongue does all of the tastes. Goldfish have amazingly good memories. Three months, and so on, and so on, and so on. But because we think we know the answers to these things, we just don't ever bother going and investigating. And the next part of this first point is, why even bother to gatekeep this question? And we saw in the first episode, some of the Stratfordians are really aggressively gatekeeping. They do not want people to even ask. But why? I mean, if the answer is so certain, letting people study it should only bring further confirmation. If their actual approach or method or analysis is terrible, critique that. But what if the people who claim that the doubts are ridiculous do, in fact, secretly have doubts? Then, to me, stifling the question is not just censorship, it's also pretty damned dishonest. So on this exact same basis, I see no good reason why people can't choose to question the authorship of Jane Austen. She's my all-time favourite author. You want to investigate that? Knock yourself out. Will I join them on their quest? Actually, I probably would go in for a Jane Austen authorship analysis because I love her work, but I wouldn't deride someone's desire to tackle the question. And you never know. What if I'm wrong and they are right? Imagine the advancement of knowledge. It's a win-win. So, who am I, or indeed who is anybody, to gatekeep the canon or the knowledge around it? What does stifling the question achieve? If anything, it's likely to just inflame any existing conspiracy theories about censorship and secrecy. So, let people ask. Let them answer. Let them be happy. The second reason I feel like people should be free to ask this question is that Shakespeare's scholars have been asking it in various forms since forever anyway. And I'm talking about the Stratfordians here, not the Antis. Anytime someone creates a complete works of Shakespeare, they must make even the most cursory struggle with issues like the Shakespeare Apocrypha, the plays with missing, unclear or contradictory attributions, the ones that have Shakespeare on but seem to be, well, Shakespeare, scams, forgeries sold to the credulous, and so on. So Shakespeare's name has been found on such plays as The London Prodigal from 1605, A Yorkshire Tragedy from 1608, Sir John Oldcastle from 1619, and so on, yet these are widely viewed as either deliberately or accidentally incorrect attributions. Such editors also have to deal with issues like collaborations, revisions, multiple conflicting copies. So in deciding what to include and exclude, these people are already implicitly answering the did Shakespeare write everything attributed to him question, even if they haven't thought about it out loud in those terms. And if they follow someone else's model, then they are accepting the answers to this question that others have come up with long before. And as the next episode will show, the passing centuries have provided countless opportunities for incrementally mounting errors. Indeed, we already have a historical record showing that the canon itself, that enshrined collection of Shakespeare's undoubted works, is not as concrete as it might seem. In the words of Gabriel Egan, 
1623, the first folio gave Shakespeare sole credit for 36 plays that have since then formed the core of his accepted canon. Only one play that was already in print but left out of the first folio has been universally accepted as part of the Shakespeare canon since the late 18th century, Pericles, which was published in 1609 with his name on the title page. In 1634, an edition of The Two Noble Kinsmen appeared with the names of Shakespeare and John Fletcher on its title page, and by the late 20th century, this had become widely accepted as an accurate attribution. One seemingly conservative way to define Shakespeare's dramatic canon, then, is to include the 36 first folio plays, plus Pericles and the two noble kinsmen. These 38 plays are the ones offered in the Royal Shakespeare Company edition, Complete Works. Unfortunately, this conservative definition is certainly wrong. There are undoubtedly more plays to which Shakespeare contributed parts, and substantial parts of plays in the 1623 first folio are not his. Interesting. Anyway, if we are genuinely open-minded in asking whether Shakespeare wrote some or all of the works attributed to him, then obviously we have to be equally open-minded in answering it. And if we accept that this answer could turn out to be partially or even fully no, then we have to be prepared for an even bigger question still. If some or all of the works of Shakespeare, in full or in part, were not penned by the Stratford Glover's son, then who did write them? And you might kind of ask yourself at this point, why is anyone even bothered anyway? Does it really matter who wrote Shakespeare? We have the works, can't we just enjoy them? Why is the Shakespeare authorship question so important? I mean, Shakespeare's dead. Even if his estate were still receiving royalties, I'm not sure dead people are authorised to make monetary transfers. And how would they go about disentangling centuries of incorrectly attributed payments and... I don't know, I can't say I'm au fait with these pressing areas of law. The point is, if Shakespeare's own money isn't the issue, then why do we care? Why can't we just let the plays and poems be nice pieces of work and accept that the authorship on them is maybe a little bit woolly here and there? Why are people so invested in answering this question as firmly as possible, in whichever direction? And people really have been very interested in it, as you're going to see over this miniseries. Both the Stratfordians, who are certain that the Glover son really is the bard, and the Antis, who have a range of alternative candidates in his place. Who stands to lose or gain if the current accepted wisdom changes? In the authorship companion, when discussing a lofty folk-cult theatre on why we bother to attach so much importance to the author, Taylor writes, What is the importance to us, four centuries after Shakespeare's death and burial, of the hypothesis that some scenes of the play Edward III were written by the same hand that wrote the long narrative poem Lucrece? Has the cultural importance of attribution or anonymity changed between Shakespeare's time and ours? I'll try to answer all of these questions by way of a brief hypothetical. So, suspend your disbelief as high as you possibly can, maybe stick a Dan Brown hat over its head to keep it really quiet, and come with me on a fantastic short story called The Shakespeare.
Let's imagine that, I don't know, a PhD student has taken on the Shakespeare authorship question for their thesis. They've got an old laptop, it's covered in Swampert stickers, they've gathered digital copies of the many versions of Shakespeare, including everything from the canon and all the works from the Apocrypha, and they are comparing the complete known works of 100 other authors from around that time. People who even work in this field will know how monumental this task is that I've just described, but let's just go with it for now. After an exhaustive process of, let's say, corpus linguistic analyses, it's my podcast, I can do that, Uh, So after an exhaustive process of corpus linguistic analyses, Shakespeare has been compared to all of these other authors and their works, and some really rather surprising results have come back. Remember, this is a story, not real. Shakespeare didn't write most of the canon, or maybe even any of it. So remember, this is a story, and to an extent you can choose the details to suit you, I don't mind. Anyway, maybe this student, I'm going to call them Alex for short, just to make my life easier, Twitter handle, Alexis apart. So at the start, Alex has quickly learned that the authorship question is a mess that sprawls centuries and continents and the bitter fault lines of human ego. But at the end of their PhD, they also find out that attempts to publish unorthodox answers to that question pretty much all end up plunging down into the academic abyss known as desk reject. But Alex is social media savvy, and they're undeterred by the old modes of scientific communication, so they start pinging their findings out into the public domain. I don't know, maybe they use blog posts, memes, jokes, whatever. They make it fun and accessible. Next thing, a local journalist picks it up, and then it gets bigger, and then it's snowballed in the press for a bit. Maybe some big-shot scientist with a million followers posts about it, and then the singularity hits. Whatever the case, imagine that in one way or another, the story gets out, the narrative starts to shift. This new way of looking at Shakespeare lands in front of the eyes of a large number of people and the media picks it up in a big way. What would the reaction be to the news that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare? To try and answer this, I have to draw on some of my own experiences, so apologies that I'm going to waffle on a bit for a moment here. So once upon a time, my work also got picked up in the media, and each time things went surreal very quickly. Each one lasted about a week, and looking back, I will be very glad if it doesn't happen again, to be honest. The levels of stress are unreal. It's exhausting. It's, yeah, anyway. So the first time it started out small, there was this sort of snide, backhanded article in The Guardian, half laughing at my research, like, oh, trolls, who researches trolls? Aren't academics weird? But then it got picked up much more seriously in the US, where there had been a spate of really serious incidents involving children. I won't go into any further details there. Back in the UK, it then got re-cannibalised back into the media cycle as the topic du jour, as a really pressing moral and cultural debate point. Except it lasted for a week, and a week is a long time when you're doing this kind of thing. It's very intense. So in that time, a related high-profile story of abuse hit the headlines and the whole thing exploded. So I would wake up and I would have numerous texts, I would have dozens of private messages, sometimes I would have hundreds of emails, missed calls and more. Lots of the contacts were generally uplifting. So I had barristers emailing to ask if I would do talks for them, I had politicians lining up to see if I could speak at their constituency offices or in the Houses of Parliament. I had interview requests with more TV and radio shows and publications than I will ever now remember. And given that my research was about trying to understand why people are awful online, 
you'd think that there wouldn't be much for anyone to get angry at me about. Seems like a pretty nice thing, right? You know, you're trying to make the internet a bit less horrible for all of us. And you would be wrong. The extreme free speech advocates were convinced that I had been put on this planet purely to eradicate them, and they came for my blood. Similarly, the groups and communities explicitly oriented to creating and enjoying online conflict felt that maybe I might be a problem. So those experiences were a lot. It was very overwhelming, and that was a tiny blip compared to what this might potentially do. So let's get back to Shakespeare in this episode. Imagine that instead of abuse, we're talking about this authorship question, and in case you think, well, how could that possibly cause offence, think for a second what Shakespeare means to this country, and more broadly, the world. Remember that quote from Brian Vickers in the last episode? Shakespeare is not just a national, but an international treasure. And it is tragic to contemplate the damage done to culture in general by these additions. An international treasure. Wow. People think of Shakespeare as an institution. It's a powerful barometer of superior cultivation, an ancient literary warhammer to club down know-nothing upstarts. Shakespeare is a thousand prestigious university literature degree programmes up and down not just this country, but many countries. It's the lofty quote on any number of coats of arms, historic buildings, sporting events, coins, antiques. It's the muse for galleries full of art, scores of music, libraries of inspired literature, dances, dramas, novels, films, architecture, and more. Shakespeare is class, education, culture, heritage, prestige, and for some people, These are foundational pillars on which they build their national and individual identity. And these same pillars are closely intertwined with other forms of power like privilege, wealth, and rank. Throughout the centuries, Shakespeare has put down very deep roots, reaching from entertaining the aristocracy to being quoted at the 2012 London Olympic opening ceremonies on the world stage to being emblazoned on modern corporate buildings, to being taught to most children at most schools in the UK and beyond. Shakespeare is centuries of long-standing, deeply treasured, invisible, authorised narrative, and it's often protected by absolute reverence. Shakespeare, for many, is sacred. And, like it or not, Shakespeare is a global commercial industry worth billions. Literally. Right from the theatres and the plays and the productions, all the way down to the cups and mugs and keyrings and pens and t-shirts and tea towels and posters, books, everything. It generates literally billions. So, our young academic, with their laptop covered in Swampert stickers, has put out results that fairly convincingly show that Shakespeare didn't write some or any of the works attributed to him. The foundational literature that this country was built on, not written by that godlike figure. And then think what the tabloids would do with this story. So, of course, strip away the nuance, get rid of all the scientific wonder of some new facts that could revolutionise and shape our world, 
Forget the idea that this could give us a wonderful glimpse into a past that has always been hidden. I don't see any of that happening. I see headlines like... Shakespeare. The geek who wants to kill Bill. Woke snowflake boffin cancels Bard. First they took our sugar, now scientists try to take our Shakespeare. Okay, maybe I should stop. Anyway, I'm guessing they'd use mock-ups of dead Shakespeare's, or Shakespeare's with void stamps on their faces, or copies of Shakespeare in a bin, on fire, outside, with a weeping teacher curled up on the floor in the background, or whatever. The subtext, I imagine, would be, who is this nobody from nowhere trying to destroy our culture, our heritage, our national identity? And I imagine the feverish catastrophizing would escalate by the hour. If Shakespeare is dead, what about the Shakespeare museums? All those people out of work. Well done, Alex. What about the trusts? Whose money is it now? What about the theatres and acting companies? Actors have a hard enough time getting work as it is. Again, well done, Alex. What about all those big budget movies? What about the buildings and streets and schools and pubs and God knows what else named after him? What should they be called now? What about school curricula? What about everyone who ever got a degree in Shakespeare? This would be the end of the definitive intellectual kite mark of the literati. Now, obviously, most of these questions are hyperbolic and nonsensical. We could still enjoy the works. We could still celebrate them. We could still learn about them. Shakespeare wouldn't vanish. It would evolve from a man to a beautiful collection of art. Look, see, I called it beautiful. I'm not a complete monster. But the problem is, no matter what common sense may tell the individual person, tabloids are not given to throwing away something that can be framed as a monumental tragedy of the modern age when it's gifted to them. And so I imagine that a story like this would be absolute cannon fodder for the most divisive, jingoistic and populist voices. And this would be picked up and parroted endlessly by opportunistic politicians and ruffled captains of industry and other invested figures who feel like this pulls some of the rug of power out from under their feet. Such a story has the potential to feed class wars and nationalist moral panics and more. It would be entrenched into whatever the major issue of the day was, war, pandemics, scandal, it wouldn't matter, it would be made to fit. But it would do more than just this. Perhaps most directly aggrieved of all would be the thousands of scholars working in the field of Shakespeare, because quite unintentionally, Alex would have debunked innumerable publications, both by Stratfordians and by most of the antis too. All of those books and articles and treatises and talks, the way one play relates to another, the development of Shakespeare's craft over time, the glowing panegyrics of his life and art, the extensive speculative biographies. A well-evidenced large-scale shift in Shakespearean authorship attribution would render entire libraries of publications on Shakespeare utterly irrelevant. So back to our question. Why do we care about who wrote Shakespeare? Well, because for many people, Shakespeare is something they feel like they own. It's part of who they are, even if they hate it in general, as I kind of do. It's a part of their cultural and national identity. It's deeply enmeshed within who they are as a single person and as part of a larger culture. 
People feel like it's in their blood, it's their social tapestry, it's their meaning. And when new science arrives that challenges who we are, we are likely to react not with reason, but with feelings. For most people, and certainly for many tabloids, challenging Shakespeare's authorship would be reduced to a black and white narrative of killing him off, destroying a legacy. And that is like demolishing several major cornerstones of identity all at once. No matter how good the facts, people will not easily loosen their grip on things that make them feel relevant and important and educated. Instead, feelings will come into play. And it really doesn't matter how little facts care about feelings, because time and again throughout history we've seen what happens when the sharp scalpel of science cuts through deep-running sentiments such as nationalism and status. In response, feelings have a damned good go at murdering facts. So, some examples. Copernicus once proposed that we are not the actual centre of the universe. People got really mad about it. It hurt their feelings of importance, their sense of rank, their place in the cosmic ordering of things. Then, scientists dug up dinosaurs, like actual bones, not just theory, these big things you could touch and put together, like giant confusing Lego. Loads of people got really mad about that too. They didn't like how it made them feel about religion. And again, their place in the order of things. Then Darwin published Origin of Species, and if you thought the dinosaur bones were bad, that one goes on forever. Just go read the history of it. So many sensitive, bruised egos about the idea that we are descended from mere common apes from animals, and not created like a work of art by the divine hand of some ultimate being. Loads of hurt feelings. The academy, the politicians, the pope, you name it, everyone got stuck into that. So how would it go if someone like Alex debunked Shakespeare as the sole or primary author of some or all of the canon? Feelings would happen, and I suspect it would get very ugly very quickly. In this modern era of social media, it might even escalate into a politically divisive culture war. And yet, even though Alex would be catapulted through a lot of very immediate, angry infamy, one's passions about the matter died down, their final destination would be immortality, or as close to it as we ever get, just like Copernicus and Darwin. Make a historical course correction like this that takes hold, and once everyone comes to accept it as the new normal, then it's your name that goes on all the buildings and libraries, just as Darwin's is everywhere now. Should this person end up being you, dear listener, then I imagine the first few years would be rough. The fighting would never stop in your lifetime, nor even for several lifetimes after. But before the end of the first decade, your career would be made. You would be the name everyone knows, the speaker everyone invites. You would be the high-profile hire guaranteed to draw in the crowds. For the person who genuinely cracks the Shakespeare authorship question, whether to prove that he did author the works, or didn't, or something in between, there is a glittering future. At the same time, should the authorship of Shakespeare be reconfigured, it would dismantle the whole field, and reassemble it in such a way that you, or Alex, or whoever, would probably end up at or near the apex and at least some of the old guard would find themselves falling off the bottom. Obsolete. And this is why the Stratfordians sometimes argue that this is a glory-seeking effort rather than a scientific mission. They feel that the people who are pursuing these avenues are simply trying to grab the headlines. 
At the same time, however, the anti say that the Stratfordians are so committed to their view because the status quo is so heavily in their favour, they already have the headlines, they're already getting the big funding and the fame and so on. Once again, I have to say, my little Shakespeare story there, I have to reiterate how improbable at least that exact version of the story is on two grounds. The first is Occam's razor, I've mentioned it before and I will come back to it again later. The other is all the difficulties of working with this kind of data that I mentioned in the very beginning of the story. I sort of said, you know, they've got a hundred data sets of authors and they've got all of the works of Shakespeare. Just the agonies of that question alone could be an entire podcast miniseries by itself. Also, producing results that could rise to such an evidentiary standard as to overcome plenty of reasonable objections, and there would be plenty, would be incredibly difficult. Remember, you would have to contend with choosing the best data sets, accounting for the many ways multiple authorship can make its way into a text, justifying your choice of suspect list, explaining your methods needle to thread, evidencing why your results really do convincingly identify someone else as the probable author, and so on and so forth. Any one of these parts of the project would be agony by itself, and there are still other issues besides. But even though every single one of these is extremely difficult, none are impossible. So let's scale it right down to something more realistic. Let's change it from catastrophically, you know, shifting the authorship on most of the canon to maybe just inconveniently relegating Shakespeare into second place on a few of the major plays, or adding his name to other works previously unsuspected, or some combination of that. Even these much more modest results would produce aftershocks sufficient to reconstruct the field of Shakespeare, and just as some stakeholder shares would go up, others would certainly go down. It would result in the republications of countless volumes, and I said it before, but the name of Shakespeare being stamped upon a work is a de facto hallmark of excellence. To have the name added to some new work would instantly confer interest in it. There would be new publications, new productions, new degree programmes and more. The warm springs of both fame and funding would change course, and it would leave some of the big fish in their old ponds to slowly dry out, whilst the little newcomers are flooded. Back in real life then, away from this sort of black mirror version of Shakespeare reality, for me, the resistance to questioning Shakespeare, and particularly his authorship of the canon, has always seemed less about, say, having a sensible research question, or using rigorous methods, or finding results that rise to an appropriate evidentiary standard. Instead, it's felt more insidious. Defensive, even. It's looked like gatekeeping, I've said this before, and it's looked like an attempt to maintain a highly prestigious status quo that protects a monolithic source of huge national pride and maybe even safeguards individual careers and reputations. After so many decades around so many academics, I find it impossible to believe that there aren't at least a few Stratfordians whose motives for deriding the question are impelled, at least in part, by fear. Like all the examples I just gave from Copernicus to climate change, this emotional knee-jerk reaction has happened in too many fields over too many centuries in matters both trivial and immense to have absolutely no bearing here. And as I argued right back in the beginning, if someone questions Shakespeare's authorship using rigorous science and their answers back the Stratfordians up, then what's the problem? More power to the Strats. And if someone challenges the authorship with bad science, take their work apart on those grounds. Point out the problems and then move on. But I suspect, 
rightly or wrongly, that the concern is with neither of these outcomes. I think, instead, it might be that little voice that haunts the pre-dawn hours and whispers, yes, but what if they're right? So, how easy or hard is it to tackle this question properly? What do you even have to contend with if you want to put together a convincing set of results capable of changing the tide on this already stormy sea? Let's get stuck into the really difficult bit. Okay, so in forensic linguistics, generally speaking, you get a disputed text. It's the one everyone's arguing over, hence the word disputed. It might actually be 20 emails or a thousand text messages or whatever. But typically, whatever that data set is, there's just one version of it. There aren't three versions of, say, the first tweet and then seven different versions of the next tweet and no clear idea which should be taken as the official one. But as usual, Shakespeare has to be the overachiever. In lots of cases, there are canonical editions of, well, the Shakespeare canon. That is, there are the versions that most people take as the Romeo and Juliet or the Macbeth. Some of us have even learned some of the lines from them, and we think of those lines as being immutably part of that work, that those works are just not the real complete thing if those lines don't exist. But in reality, this is simply not true. There are multiple versions of many of Shakespeare's plays. What am I talking about? Well, firstly, these plays are usually written by hand to start with. They didn't have word back then. And imagine writing out the entire script, say, ten times, one for every actor. That is a massive job. Instead, in Elizabethan times, rather than writing out plays in full, they were typically written per character and then later combined into a master copy, or some variation of this. So Shakespeare allegedly operated on this particular method, crafting characters for each actor and collaborating with them when practising and performing the play. That's right, collaborating with them. So every actor was given a part consisting of his character's spoken lines along with a few cues. So Taylor and Burroughs argue that all Shakespeare's plays were written to be co-created by a team and that members of this team were continually changing over time. So Shakespeare's plays and Shakespeare himself was connected with multiple actors, artists and playwrights and it would be impossible to name them all. So the playwright creates the separate pages of lines for each actor, the actor may or may not have some input, maybe a line or a joke doesn't work so well on the night so they change it afterwards, or a whole scene gets cut because it's a bit boring and they put a new scene in or they just leave it out completely. Maybe an actor literally breaks in leg and a new guy steps in, but they like to play that character a bit differently. And so already now you have multiple versions of this play, even if it's just over a few weeks. But then... Let's say a publisher gets in touch or the playwright secures a publishing deal. Now it's time to reproduce, print and sell, let's say, Hamlet. But to do this, the typesetters need a copy of the play. The trouble is, the version in writing isn't an exact replica of the one being performed because some of the actors play their parts differently depending on where the performance is taking place. They may leave certain jokes in if it's just the rabble at the theatre, they may take the riskier lines out if they're in court entertaining the aristocracy. And since they've memorised their part, they haven't bothered to update their script because what's the point? They'd have to change it every day sometimes. And even if they were keeping their parts beautifully up to date somehow, manuscripts go missing. 
They fall apart, they land in the fire, they get stolen, sometimes they're just illegible. Let's say, though, that the playwright manages to create an up-to-the-moment copy of the play as it's happening on stage right then, and off it goes to the printers. A week later, the production might have changed again to reflect recent politically or socially relevant events, new jokes will have been added, old ones will have been dropped because they're tired or dangerous, then a bright new star might breeze in and adapt, shorten, revitalise. The script, the entire script, is now half the length but twice as brilliant. And of course, very different to the one that went off to the printers last month. So, now, which is the real version? Multiply all these variables by plenty of actors, dozens of plays, hundreds of edits, thousands of performances, tens of thousands of print runs, and what you're left with is, in some cases, not just incredible variation between different versions of the exact same play, but also a long history of lost versions that were never committed to record before the last spoken word of them faded from the air, never to be revived. In response to all of this, you might say, well, what about the first folio? Surely, once Shakespeare dies and people have picked their favoured version, that would be it, right? Nope. More complications still. In 1755, Samuel Johnson published his Dictionary of the English Language. In its wake, various societies, handbooks, style guides, notable figures and even political efforts all bent their attention on spelling reforms. Now this is a whole topic by itself, but the short version is that spelling did not standardise overnight. It lurched and staggered along, sometimes it stumbled back a bit, then it raced forward, until we are where we are today. As a result, however, copies of Shakespeare's works from different time periods typically have their original spelling variations modified to reflect whatever the accepted standard of spelling was in that moment. But some might apply light-touch changes here and there, whilst others might comb through the whole work, changing a substantial percentage of it. And, alongside this, modern copies often have perceived wording errors and lineation problems fixed too. Then you have people like Bowdler, who quite literally Bowdlerized Shakespeare. I'm going to try not to roll my eyes right out of my head, but it's going to be tough. Bowdler expurgated... No, really, it sounds like something out of Futurama, but that is the proper technical term. Anyway, he expurgated the works of Shakespeare. Maybe it's expurgated. I've never actually heard this word said out loud. You say it how you like, I don't mind. By this, I mean that he removed or reworked lewd and lascivious content. In other words, he deployed metaphorical fig leaves to the text, hence why these are sometimes referred to as fig leaf editions. Why would he do this? To protect the innocent eyes, ears, and easily corrupted minds of women and children. See also Comstockery, Patronising, Streisand Effect. Small digression. My upper school didn't have much going for it, but I do vividly remember all these decades later the sheer scorn that our literature teacher, Ms. Simmons, poured on the idea of censoring texts. Apparently, the previous teacher on the course had used fig leaf editions for the girls, and her contempt for that idea was amazing. I can still remember it. Good teachers really do stay with you forever. Never mind the fact that, having studied the play twice over for two different schools, 
I still couldn't tell you which bits were supposed to have put my fragile little mind in such peril. But anyway, back to the point. Aside from spelling reforms, and censorship, you also have the publishers who think some bits are just a bit too dull, or that the whole thing is way too long, and they decide to abridge a volume. But different editors might abridge in different ways. Then you have the straight-up errors that can easily creep in when typesetting a whole play by hand. You've got missed words, missed lines, missed pages, that might have been not only replicated from one copy to another, but added to with yet more errors through the centuries, just as a new cell in the body recreates all the previous errors and then adds one or two more of their own to the mix. In forensic linguistics, the idea that someone has tampered with the spelling, the formatting, the content of the data, sends a wave of cold sweat over the skin. This is meant to be your disputed text, and you can't even figure out which is supposed to count as the original. And then it's possibly been tampered with, edited, standardised, abridged, airbrushed, fixed, sanitised, corrupted, over and over and over again, for centuries, by innumerable unnamed people. So, let's say you're a Shakespearean authorship analyst. Which play, or plays, do you take as your known texts? What's your evidence for assuming that this version of the data was purely and completely the work of one man called Shakespeare? Because if you get that wrong, then you have already started from a problematic, if not an entirely false position. Can you be sure that there was no interference? If it's unavoidable to use texts that will have been modified in some way, how do you mitigate against the influence of other voices and hands? Do you cut out entire swathes of analysis like spelling and formatting and punctuation because these are all far too vulnerable to the vagaries of editing and publishing? Do you only consider the handwritten originals? And again, which ones? Once you've sorted out these problems, you have to go through exactly the same sets of questions about your disputed texts. Essentially, this all introduces innumerable potentially conflicting variables and infinite possible configurations of known texts and disputed texts. At the risk of over-explaining the whole thing, I'll put this into a concrete example. Let's say you decide to run a Shakespeare authorship project and your best friend thinks this is a great idea. You both agree to use the exact same methods and you both decide to use King Lear and Hamlet as your known texts, you presume, that these are by Shakespeare. This is a fairly reasonable starting point because both plays are pretty well known and widely accepted as having been authored by Shakespeare. And you decide that you're going to compare these against, say, Othello, to see if it matches King Lear and Hamlet. This would be a sort of inclusion or exclusion question, with Othello as the disputed text. Robust similarities would have Othello accepted into or kept in the Shakespeare canon, Striking differences would have it removed or excluded from the canon. So far, so good. So you both go ahead and you feverishly run your analyses and you get your results and you get back together and like good scientists, you're striving to replicate the studies for maximum empirical validity. But when you compare, your results are different. Baffled, you each take over the other's project and run the same analyses as an error-checking precaution, but all you do is reconfirm the first round of results and they remain, stubbornly, different to each other. What has happened? Well, hopefully it's very obvious given everything I've already said. You've each unwittingly chosen different versions of King Lear, Hamlet, and Othello. 
and they really can be quite different. One version of King Lear has about 200 lines more than another. Similarly, the quarto version of Hamlet has over 200 lines that the folio version doesn't have, but at the same time, the folio version has 70 lines that the quarto doesn't have. And there are hundreds of other differences in individual words or short phrases. In fact, there are multiple versions of the various folios and quartos, and remember, these are all still publications that are a long way downstream from the original handwritten scripts. Don't forget too that if you want to do this properly, and especially if you're going to want to show that someone else wrote the works of Shakespeare, you're going to have to draw up a list of viable possible alternatives. So, who is going on your suspect list? What's your evidence for including some and excluding others? Do you even know all the people who could realistically be the alternative author or authors? Is this an impossibly open-ended list? Once you finally have a hopefully closed set of candidates, you're also going to have to find comprehensive known text datasets for them too. That is, if they even have surviving texts that can be confidently attributed to them. And you're also going to have to deal with exactly the same sets of issues around editing and standardisation and interference for all of their works. And then you're going to need to perform rigorous comparisons back and forth until you've got a complete picture of what's going on. And of course, the analysis itself has got to be meaningful. You can't just wheel out any old method and assume it will actually tell you anything useful. And even more, of course, lots of people disagree about the best ways to test for authorship. Methods range from highly qualitative historical approaches to discourse analysis and stylistics through to much more quantitative methods like corpus linguistics and statistical analyses right through to straight-out black-box algorithms and multivariate methods such as principal component analysis and Bayesian mathematics. The short version here is that when it comes to the field of Shakespearean authorship, if you're really trying to do it properly, there are quite a lot of headaches involved, even just in getting off the ground. But even those many difficulties involved in identifying versions and creating datasets and mitigating for interference and using a robust method and interpreting the results sensibly and so on, have not remotely stopped scholars in the field. For some, I'm sure it's actually just made it all the more fun, and plenty of Shakespeare scholars have given all of these matters and far more besides considerable thought. I'm talking here about both the Stratfordians and the Antes. Plenty of work makes its steps and methods as transparent as possible and clearly identifies the range of potential problems and shortcomings, but some enthusiasts haven't worried about any of this at all. They've galloped straight past any evidence supporting the Stratford position without bothering to discount it sensibly, past the methodological headaches and the biographical evidence and the linguistic nightmares, right into the far juicier part of the equation, who they think the real William Shakespeare is. So, let's get on to the pet theories, and I will warn you now, some are definitely more robust than others. Moreover, the past two centuries have produced an astonishing number of answers to the question, who wrote Shakespeare? As I record this, over 80 different candidates have been put forward as the real Shakespeare, but because this miniseries has to end somewhere, we only cover the five most popular theories, and as ever, we'll start at the beginning with a theory that is... coming up in the next episode.
End of part two of six. If you're interested in more Shakespeare content from linguists at Lancaster, then search the internet for FutureLearn Shakespeare's Language. Those four words, FutureLearn Shakespeare's Language. This free online course is all about both revealing the meanings in the works and exploring the myths about Shakespeare in general. And as a bonus, you get introduced to corpus-based methods for analysing Shakespeare. What's not to love? This episode was researched and fact-checked by my research assistant, Rebecca Jagodzinski, and my intern, Debbie Tomkinson. And it was narrated and produced by me, Dr. Claire Hardacre. I am also extremely grateful for all the input I've had from the renowned Shakespeare authority, Professor Jonathan Culpepper, creator of that online course I mentioned, who has patiently entertained this whole miniseries idea from inception to gruesome, bloody execution. However, this work wouldn't exist in its current form without the prior efforts of many, many others. You can find acknowledgements and references at the blog. Also there, you can find data, links, articles, pictures, older cases, and more besides. The address for the blog is wp.lancs.ac uk forward slash on Claire. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at underscore on Claire. Or if you like, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Claire H.